If you're like me, struggling to get your stock dog to perform well doing just the basics on the farmer ranch, you might have mixed emotions when stock dog legend Juan Reyes tells us that even he is only scratching the surface of what a Border Collie can do. But keep listening to his gentle, confidence-inspiring coaching, and he'll make you a believer too. Welcome to Farm Dog. This is Farm Dog, the podcast about the working dogs of farming, ranching, homesteading, and rural living. Farm Dog is presented by Goats on the Go, a national network of independent business owners who provide sustainable weed and brush control for their customers using goats. Want to put goats to work on your vegetation problem? Interested in launching your own goat grazing business? The place to start is goatsonthego.com. Welcome to Farm Dog. I'm your host, Aaron Steele, and I have a great guest with me today. Juan Reyes is uh, from MR Angus Ranch in Wheatland, Wyoming. He has a long history in the cattle dog trial world and a lot of success there. Uh, but what I like about uh, Juan and his website and the information he's put out to the world is that he really is focused on ranch work and that his dogs need to prove themselves there first. So Juan, would you just pick up where we left off before we hit the record button and just tell us about yourself in your ranch and your history with dogs? Uh, my history with dogs starts clear back in the early 70s. I was uh, cowboying for a ranch outside of Laramie. Uh, we had uh, cattle and sheep. Uh, at one point, there was a, we, we needed to shear some sheep, and, uh, and a gentleman showed up with a black and white dog. This was probably in 1973. Uh, showed up and, and it was just really impressed me uh, because I used to go out with my horse and gather the sheep every night uh, due to predators. We had to lock them up. And he comes and I saddle my horse and he looks at me and he says, well, I'll just send this dog out and gather those sheep for you. And I started laughing and I said, man, you must be crazy. And that, that guy's name is Jim Chant, which uh, deceased now, but he was one of my mentors. Uh, and that's how it started in 73. And he sent this dog out and I'm standing there at the gate. And, and this is not a small pasture. It's like half a section, 320 acres. And I'll be darned if the dog doesn't bring all the sheep in and, and in an orderly manner. I mean, uh, I was super impressed, and I told myself, someday I'll have a dog like that. Uh, so that's how it started, and uh, I quit that job, and Joni and I got married in 77, and we ran cattle at Tie Siding, Wyoming, and there again, there was a gentleman by the name of Joel Kirkendall that was managing a pretty good-sized ranch next to us, and I noticed that that guy was never dirty. He always had the cleanest clothes and, and never did see him on a horse. And he was running some McNabb dogs, uh, which has been said that they're a derivative of a border collie. Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer to that, but I, I believe it. Anyway, the guy ran those McNabs, and, and we were in uh, National Forest, Roosevelt National Forest. And I'd be darned if he wasn't driving his pickup around. And pretty soon, here comes two or three hundred head of mother cows following him. And that was impressive. So so I bought one of those McNabb dogs from him. 
and uh, turned out he was a pretty good dog. Uh, ended up in Wheatland after that in 1983. And uh, at that time, there was a dog, probably a little later than that, but there was a dog by the name of Wisp, a two or three time international champion that was a pretty tough dog in Scotland. Bobby Dial ran him. Anyway, my breeding goes up. My breeding goes back to that wisp dog. He was tough and he had brains. And those are things that are very important to me. As a matter of fact, when people ask me what kind of a dog I like, I like a dog with brain, power, presence, and endurance. Those are the things I'd look for in a, in a border collie. So a friend of mine, uh, Glenn Barlow, went to buy some pups out of this wisp dog that had been syndicated to the U.S. And uh, uh, he ended up with a bitch dog and I ended up with a male dog. And uh, he, we called him Gris and he's the foundation of all my breeding. So that's, that's the start of it. I don't know if you have any more questions on that or not. Well, that's a great introduction. I appreciate that. One thing that I'm curious about is um, when you saw that first dog work way back in 1973 had were you aware of herding dogs at all prior to that i mean had you explored it and looked into it or is that your very first introduction not at all that was that was the amazing part to me it it was uh i I tell people that we're at the tip of the iceberg on this what a border collie can do uh it's, it's up to our brain power and our teaching ability that we we got a lot more to explore out of these dogs as far as handling livestock than than we give them credit for. So no, that was uh that was an amazing moment to me. Okay. And how far along, well I may be jumping the gun with this question, but let's go ahead and ask. So if nineteen seventy three was the first idea that got into your head that you wanted a dog like that. How long before you started realizing not only is that dog going to be useful on the farm and ranch, but there's also this really great game out there that I could go compete with these dogs. Oh, that probably took, uh, of course, what I saw was what a life saving a dog could be. Uh, as a cowboy, as a stockman, as a rancher, you know, you always get into these wars with family and employees when you go work cattle. And I, I told myself, there's got to be an easier way to do this. Mm. And going back to that dog so easily handling the stock that I made it a point to go ahead and, and make a cattle dog do the same event. And, and instead of, uh, having a confrontation with with folks, I just went out and I worked on my dogs and, and just started making them or asking them to do what I wanted them to do. Uh, so so I was I guess I was self-taught a lot. Uh, like I said, Jim Chant, uh, Red Oliver, you know, Dorrance Eye Camp, there's just but Pete Carmichael, there's a there's numerous people that have influenced my life on working dogs, but but to be honest with you, I was doing things that 
GM and and the rest of those mentors didn't hadn't seen before. I was sorting cattle in the alleyways. I was taking cattle to the scale, uh, and they were just amazed at how effective that was. And so was I. And, but but that was all pretty much self-taught, I guess. A lot of it. I, I was I went to one clinic, uh, and soon. Soon after that, I, I learned a little bit about the dogs from uh, from the clinic, but it, it's a different world out here than clinics. And I'm not downplaying clinics. I I know some great great clinicians, and I've done some a handful of clinics myself. But if if we would just try to learn from those dogs, we could all be great stockmen. Mm. Well, do me a favor and tell me more about that different world that you're in daily um, that is so different from a clinic. And tell me how it develops good dogs. Well, as you probably know, I was one of the founding fathers of members, I just say, of the NCA, National Cattle Dog Association. Uh, so, so I learned a lot about clinics and demonstrations and uh and trials, and uh, my joy was always getting up in the hills and have those dogs, extend those dogs out and bring livestock to you, gather livestock. So I'll put it simply, I guess, and my son, Jason, and his wife were very involved in the, in the dog world now. Uh, and, I, and actually, my daughter, it, it's amazing to me. She, we're taking pictures right now for February 26th bull sale. And her and her dog go out there and set those bulls up for pictures. So it's amazing mm. that that there's more to all this than, than we realize, you know. So, so their capabilities are just numerous. Uh, but Jason said it the best. Dad, we're raising, we don't want any eight-minute dogs. We, and he was relating to a trial. Sure. We want eight-hour dogs. And that's that's what we tried to breed. And uh, and luckily enough, we've, we've had enough foundation that we've been very fortunate to have a clientele that really wants our breeding. So you let Did the cat answer your question. Yeah, absolutely. You you let the cat out of the bag there. I've always wondered if you go to um, uh, M and R Angus uh, Ranch website, you will see some gorgeous pictures of some great looking bulls. I've always wondered how you got those bulls out there to stand still for you like that and and uh, pose for pictures. And it turns out there's a border collie just off the off the side, apparently, huh? My my daughter and and. Uh dog called sis which goes back to my old breeding uh that's yeah that's who does it and uh she like i said you you see things like that and, and people don't realize the use of a border collar how many ways we could expand on their abilities mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about some of those uses uh on your ranch and i think it might help our audience to know a little bit about your ranch, how big it is, what the terrain is like, how many head of cattle you're working with. 
just so they can understand a little bit of the the day-to-day chores that you need to get done with your dogs well first of all we we work our dogs in in all types of livestock uh, yearlings cow calf in all types of environment open big open country and in the feedlot, we run a 7,000 head, one one time capacity feedlot. We run somewhere between eight and a thousand mother registered Angus cows. And I'll, I'll tell you an application that how, how it does relate to it. It used to take us weeks to gather up 60 head of bulls. With these border collies, Jason goes out there and parks the trailer next to a four-wire fence and a border collie or two, and they load right up into the trailer. So that saved us a tremendous amount of time and, and cowboy power. And that's what we're looking for in, in our dog is to, uh, to work well with horsemen and, uh, and our employees. And our employees, all one of the advantages they have is they... They come here and they see these dogs doing some amazing things, whether it's in the feedlot or out in the open, and they pretty much, they've learned and uh, they ask for advice and, and they're doing quite well themselves. They're better in their lives and, and hopefully they'll help them if they ever leave here to uh, to continue learning about border calls and use border calls. What are some ways that you use, I mean, you've already hinted at a couple of things, but what are some ways that you use border collies on your ranch that most people, or that many people wouldn't think of using them or would it, wouldn't, um, wouldn't expect that a border collie could, all, could actually pull off? I mean, you, you've said there's all sorts of things and we've, we've barely, we're looking at the tip of the iceberg in terms of what a border collie can do. You mentioned sorting in some alleys. You mentioned holding those bowls out there for for photos. Is there anything else you do that I that somebody might think, "Wow, I never really never really thought that my border collie might be capable of that." You know, we run in pretty rough country, uh, lots of rocks and sagebrush. Uh, some of the things that those cattle, when when they eat down the bottoms, the riparian areas. They start climbing those hills, and and some of those hills could be, see from from our ranch house to the top, looking to the west, it it, it could have a six hundred foot rise or or nine hundred feet. I really don't know, but uh, it's tremendous. When those cattle are up there, you can't hardly get a horse up there. The only reason cattle get there is they use trails, and it takes them days to get to the top. Mm. And uh, you can send a dog to the top of those mountains if you're lucky enough to have a good one. And that's that's just the beginning of it. Coming off of those mountains, he's got to be pretty well behaved or you're going to end up with dead cattle at the bottom of the canyon. Mm-hmm. So so that's, that's one application. Uh, uh, let's say a draw, a big ravine where, where, where cattle are on the other side. If you have a broke dog, you can do what we would call a cross drive to where they get to a crossing that they can cross either a river, the canyon, or so those things are, those things to me are time saving and uh, very productive. Yeah, absolutely. 
Your, your website has this statement on it. It says, uh, our dogs must prove themselves on ranch work before they become trial dogs. Um, you know, that sounds like the sort of thing that lots of people would put on their websites. You know, it's it it sounds true. It sounds accurate. But was there a time when you said, man, I just want to go win this trial. And I think that th this particular dog could be a trial winner, but I'm not going to waste time on ranch work with him. I'm, I'm just going to focus on the trial. I mean, is that is that tempting? And why do you put why do you put ranch work first? Never, never has been tempting to me. Not 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 in the peak of my career running dogs at trial. Never. I, I've always I, I've always wanted. I, I'll give you an example. I get lots of calls ordering dogs, and most of the calls will go something like this. I don't re, I don't need a real broke dog. I don't need a real trial dog. I just want a good ranch dog. And I usually start laughing because I said, a ranch dog is the epitome of all dogs. If I had a great ranch dog, it's going to cost you a hell of a lot more than a trial dog. And, and that's <laughs> how I feel about it. It's, just, it's always been my feeling. So so I live up to it. Uh, and no, never have I thought of, of trialing versus if, versus ranch work if they cannot do the work at home you'll never see me pack a dog to a trial if that that should answer your question he's got to prove himself at home before he would ever go to a trial and that's how i measure my dogs yeah that's really interesting give me some examples of um some things that a border collie is asked to do in a trial that is best learned at home doing work over long ranch days, even though they only have to do it for eight minutes at a trial. That's simple. Just they learn to handle livestock without me telling them. In the ranch world, if you're working a dog day after day, he learns to feel the stock. In a trial environment, you're telling that dog, to feel that stock. And they know it a lot better than we do how to feel that stock. They're closer to nature than we are. So that's the reason I was, I'm not a trainer. I like to work my dogs in the real world and that's where they learn. They, And that's why I won so many trials during my career is that I wasn't as good as a lot of trialers out there but my dog could feel the stock and that's that's they learn that we don't we don't have to tell them to take a two inches one way or two inches the other way they know how to feel that stock better than we do so that's that's really what i look for in in my branch dogs do do you are you able to give your ranch dogs when, when you're doing work at home um more space to make mistakes, more opportunity to just express their natural instincts and get the and develop that feel because you're not being timed, you're not being judged, you're not being evaluated. Um, absolutely absolutely opposite, absolutely opposite. I'm more severe on my grand dog where we're 
we're talking money now when you're going to the scale. That's how we make our living. We're talking money if you abuse a cow. You know, so so I'm harder. No, I'd let my dogs at a trial probably get away with things that would never at home ever happen. It, if that's what you mean. No, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, how do you how do you help them develop that stock sense to develop that feel to, to feel the stock? I, I mean, at some point they have to make mistakes, right. In order for them to, to both develop that feel for the stock, but also understand what you want them to do. So how much, how much room do you make that do you leave for them to make mistakes just so that they learn from them? You're absolutely, I think you're alluding to the fact that a dog or a horse, doesn't learn if you're protecting him all the time from making a mistake. So I do let him make mistakes and I'll correct him when that mistake is made. But but I that that is how they learn. It's by if we keep correcting a dog prior to them making a mistake, they, they cannot associate that with any wrongdoing. If they make the mistake and you I use a growl. Ah that, that's my command. I could probably go run a trial just with a, ah, you know, or hey, those two words are used a lot here. Uh, and I can probably go, and that would be the correction I make with them. They know I'm not satisfied. Will your dogs, that, that brings up an interesting question for me. Is it just your hey or your ah that they respond to? Can your dogs run with run for any of your ranch staff or is it just you and a couple other people who really are the ones running the dogs on your ranch to get stuff done we we all own our own ranch our, our own dogs uh my dog my my son my daughter my daughter-in-law the employees they have their own dogs so we don't we don't try to i, I think that could be somewhat confusing to a dog to try to have more than one person and, and there's some dogs that take to it my dogs do not my dogs listen to me and i don't know maybe i'm domineering enough i don't <laughs> know what the deal is my dogs listen to me and there could be somebody out there hollering at their dogs that they're listening to me when i talk to them i see okay so your your dogs are one person one person dogs and so are most of the dogs on the ranch uh, they work for one handler. That's correct. Okay. Um, but you often, it, it would appear, run more than one dog at once. Um, there's a really great video on YouTube of you running your dogs at a at a convention or some some sort of demonstration. And there's a trailer backed into the arena and you're loading a handful of uh, calves. And I think you're running three dogs. I would encourage the audience to go and, and look for that YouTube video because it's actually this YouTube video is embedded on your website. So it will be easy for them to find, but it is very interesting to watch you handle three dogs at once. Is that pretty typical um, that you're running multiple dogs when you're getting some work done? Yeah. Yes. I would say I tried to run more than one dog most of the time in the country we were running in, uh, in close quarters, probably not. Now, if we're emptying out a pen in the feedlot with, let's say it has 400 head of cattle in it, I'll use multiple dogs in there. 
and and the great, which I'm not, but the great handlers have different whistles or different commands for every dog out there. I can't keep track of that. So I use their name. Like I'll say red lie down. And that dog is supposed to lie down until I call his name. That's that's how I do it. Not necessarily, I think uh having different whistles and having different whistles, different commands is probably pretty darn good thing to do. I, I just don't I don't take the time to do it. I uh I just use their name to to get them to walk up or lie down or stand or away or come by. So, and that that takes quite a bit of doing because when you say away and you got three dogs out there, they all want to go away or, or the right or left is what I'm talking about. Right. So it, it, it takes uh it takes quite a bit of training to get those dogs to just wait until they hear their name and then they go to work. You read my mind on that one because that was going to be my next question is how, how do you get all of these dogs to operate um, as a team, which may involve giving one a certain command and expecting something different of another dog. I've kind of always wondered, I've done hunting, you know, I've hunted with my dog and friends dogs all in a group before. And it does seem that dogs are able to connect their name with the command that follows their name, but I don't think that that's obvious that they should be capable of that. Like It seems like a stretch to expect a dog to understand almost in human terms. When I say your name, what I'm about to say after that name is what I want you to do um, and not have any of the other dogs follow the same command. But so how much adjustment does that take? Does, does it take a little while for the dogs to switch into like team mode as opposed to just, I'm one dog working for that one guy? I, I, it, takes, it takes a long time. It takes a long time. Uh, and you know, when you're, and I think we need to be careful because, and I do it, whenever you call a dog's name, you have taken the concentration out of that dog. Mm. So you have to be careful not to get in the habit of using the dog's name for a command. I, it, it, like, like let's say if I'm teaching a dog to drive and he starts to go on the gather, he starts to go to the head and we're on, in the he, on the heels pushing cattle now. That's a drive. You, I'll use their name to break that concentration of wanting to go to the front. Ah. So, so, like, I, and I, and I guess, like I said from the beginning, brain is a pretty important part of my breeding program. Uh, and I don't need an Einstein because they think they need to go to the office and sit down. I need some in between. A Daryl Lake and Einstein, you know, something in there that can take a little punishment and 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 really these dogs get get abused pretty hard by the stock. You know, they get kicked, they get trampled, and that's when you really learn whether you have a trial dog or or a ranch dog. Those ranch dogs are the tougher. I, I like a tough dog. Uh 
with brains. And I guess I equate that to the old Hancock horses. You know, they were terrible to break. They buck you off. You could hardly get off one. But my God, if you ever broke one, you were mounted all day long. And that's the kind of dog I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so those brains can help with some of that, uh, the, the complications of running multiple dogs together. Um, do you also, when you're running multiple dogs, do you let them go a little more on instinct and less pinpoint control? Um, because it's hard to, you know, give specific commands to specific dogs at certain times. Do you let them have a little more leeway as, as in order to get something done? I let my dogs have a lot of leeway on doing the right thing. <laughs> uh, so if you don't trust your dog, you'll never have a great dog. So, so yeah, I, I'll, you know, Pete might be running wild out there and I'll say, Pete, ah, you know, that means you better go do something different, buddy. That's, that's what that means to him. And most of the time they do it. So, I, like I said, I I think I think if we could, as a stockman, if we could put more emphasis on trying to understand, getting that dog's head, trying to understand what they're thinking, not what I'm thinking. I think we would all be great handlers, or better handlers for it. I don't think I don't think forcing a dog to do things that are not natural sometimes gets us in trouble. Uh, and I'll give you one example. I just had a friend call me that got a dog from me, and he's not he's not a stockman. He's a great guy and a good friend, but he's not a stockman and. And the dog was going, if he sent the dog on the right, the dog would go on the left. And that was happening a lot. And this is where the stockmanship comes into the picture. A dog likes to go the shortest distance to stop movement. So if those cattle are headed, let's say, to my left, mm -hmm. I'll give him a come by command. I, I'll get him to go to the head. If I was to send that dog to the back end of the livestock, he's going to cross over on me and try to go to the head. I don't know if that makes any sense to you or not. Uh, I can explain that farther if you want me to. Right. So I think I'm with you. I mean, I'm, I'm very much an am a stock dog amateur, but I can totally see that, you know, why you're just trying to accomplish a task. You're trying to stop that movement. So why would you choose a path and a direction for the dog that would make he, it harder and longer? Yeah. He, he, he has to achieve the task, but he also has to do it your way instead of the natural way. That's correct. And and he fixed the problem. So, so my friend fixed the problem. So that that was good. But that it was just a stockman, uh, just not knowing. But 
But I mean, I, I don't know what other example I can give you. I haven't really thought about it, but I'm sure I could come up with some if I had enough time. That that we as humans, that that's you're forcing the dog to do the wrong thing. You're trying to force the dog, and a trial dog has to be, has to do what you're telling him if you're going to win a trial. Therefore, you're going against the grain of what these dogs are about. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Are there are there other mistakes that you see um, inexperienced handlers make in terms, and it, you can kind of chalk that up to just not understanding. They're they're trying to think of it from a human perspective instead of uh, getting inside the dog's head. Oh, I, I'll give you one example. The last clinic I did was in Bozeman, Montana. And I, I don't do very many. And my clinics go something like this before I start. I, I Most of the clinics I did, the money went to NCA, National Cattle Dog Association. So, so I tell them, I'm not a clinician. Don't ask me how well I like your dog because I don't have to do this for a living. So don't ask me those questions because I'm going to tell you just what I think. And a lot of the time, the answer would have been, just start with a new dog, uh, which is, you know, it's hard for clinicians to say. I would think it'd be detrimental for them to, to, to say something like that, but that was really, really how I feel about it. Uh, but the last clinic I did, I said, okay, put your dogs away. And I took everyone there and I said, I want you to put that cow into that pen. Well, 99% of them couldn't do it. <laughs> and here they are trying to handle a dog. So I, I don't know. That, that's one example, I guess, that I can give you. They, they you, you need to. It, it would be good to have some knowledge of livestock that you're working. Now, I don't know sheep from Adam. So, so I'm not really good. I mean, I, I've competed in some of those sheep trials, and I I donate my money quite a little bit to those trials. <laughs> so so I, I'm not good at it. Uh, but I, I understand a cow or a bull or a yearling, and, uh, and my dogs and I seem to get quite a bit done. It seems like a really good exercise to force a dog handler to do every now and then because I to to put – an animal or a small group of animals into a pen on your own, because I bet there are things that you would do your, your body would do instinctually and naturally that you wouldn't think about. It doesn't translate to being the handler. When you get the dog back in there, when you get the dog back in there, you probably start thinking in a different way. Um, but humans have some instinct too. And, and I bet that they are, when forced to put them in a pen, they either, yeah, they, their brain probably needs to disconnect from their bodies a little bit and let their instincts take over. And that's kind of what you need to do when you're a handler is disconnect yourself from wanting to put your dog to control every movement of your dog. No, no, I, I'll give you a, a friend of mine 
Glenn Barlow and I went and spent some time with Bud Williams. I don't know if you've ever heard. He's supposed to be the girl of cattle handling, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the so butt we, box. I'm sorry? The, he created the butt box, right, for cattle that's, handling? Yeah, yeah yep. that's, him. that's him. We went and spent time with him. And he said something to me that I never heard him say anywhere else. But he said, a lot of what I learned, I learned from a Border Collie dog. Hmm. Now, I came home, and that had an impression on me. I came home, and I had this dog called Gris, which a son of Wisp. And I started watching that dog do square flanks, which I didn't know what the hell a square flank was, and I really didn't care. But he was doing it on his own, handling a tough yearling that we had to get away from cows and calves. And, and man, did I, I mean, I just learned a lot from that dog. I, I learned some from every dog I've owned. And if we take that attitude rather than us knowing it all, I, I, I think we'd be, the, the, the cattle dog would improve quite a little bit. Uh, you asked me, I guess the question you asked me was, some of the, I, I tell you, I don't think the cowboys out there doing the work is really, is really the problem with border collies. I think, I think that we are breeding dogs for trials. Hmm. We're breeding a type of dog that's easier to handle. He's not a tough dog like the type of dogs I like. And I'm just using this as general. I'm sure I'm sure there's some that are tough enough and do enough. Uh, but but I, I I think we I think the breed needs to we need to get back to those tough old dogs that could go all day and and stay with you. And, and that's the kind of dog I try to breed. I I've never said that my dogs, are trial dogs and I would discourage people in New York that have three sheep and only let the dog out on weekends to go to a trial to buy one of my dogs because that would be a mistake he probably have lamb shop for supper you know I, I don't know but uh <laughs> but they're, they're tougher dogs and, and they need work so my, my dogs are more suited to a cowboy really than than trial now saying that I think 50% of the dogs at the last finals that I went to were came at their descendant of a dog I call Red. And that's pretty amazing. He had he's done a lot for the industry. He, he he's really on the cattle dog end. I don't I don't think much in the sheep world, but uh in the cattle dog end, he's he's done a lot for the breed. So yeah, I was going to ask you a little bit about Red because um, there's some part of your website dedicated to him. The, uh, as I understand it, the first inductee into the Hall of Fame for the National Cattle Dog Association. There's this great picture on your website of all the dogs that were descended from Red that belong to lots of different people who were at that um, at that meeting. Tell us a little bit more about Red and. Um, what what made him a great sire and what made him a great trial dog? Well, his, his name, of course, came after Red Oliver. Like I said a minute ago, he he was one of my mentors. 
and he used to come over and spend the summers here with us. And uh, and I had I had a wisp grandson, I guess, at that time when we first met, and he fell in love with that dog. And uh, and I said, well, you know, I'll trade you for for a pup out of Luke and Queenie. That's that's who Red is out of. So next year he shows up with his little puppy, and I love black and white. Typical black and white border collars. And he shows up with this mangy looking thing, tricolor, blue eye. And I start laughing. I thought he was kidding. <laughs> I said, come on, Red. And I, of course, I had a nice pup pick for him. Uh, tricked ear, slick hair, black and white. Anyway, that's how I ended up with Red. Uh, and he said, Juan, this is the dog for you. I don't know that he knew that or not, but that's what he, he told me, and uh, and I believed him. So that's that's how I ended up with Red. Uh, and then he went on to he went on to produce some. Well, my my two best dogs. I, I've got I've got a list of the great ones. Don't get buried here at home, but uh, but the, the Grace is probably right up there. Red, Zach, Meg, Rum. And Pancho, those dogs all, you know, pretty much go back, except for Grias, they go back to Red. Uh, and he he just had the ability to breed just about anything and and come up with a winner. You know, Zach, his son, was probably the youngest dog to ever win a national championship in 2012. He wasn't a year old. And he won it, and it was mainly not because of my handling. It was mainly because of his endurance. He he was the only one that completed the course, you know. So so that's that's why we won that. But uh, he, he's just done a lot of great things for the breed, and uh, and he was the kind of dog that you could send him after a cow on it and a young born calf. And I've seen this. And he'd be over there. You you thought he was lost out in the ranch, and uh, wondering where Red was. Wondering, and pretty soon here comes this wobbly calf and cow, nicely over the hill, you know. And those those are things that are pretty important in the breed for me. Uh, there's some we'd like to perpetuate, I guess. Sure. Yeah. Excellent. Um, I I want to go back. If I could, well, you mentioned that one of the reasons he he won um, a couple of trials was because of his endurance. But you, the amount of time you spend on the trial course is relatively short compared to the work you do back on the ranch where you're putting in full days. So I'm trying to understand how a dog with endurance for a full day of ranch work translates to a dog with endurance in the trial world. Is it just that, like the mental toughness that goes with being locked in all day long uh, translates to the trial world in terms of just being able to keep that focus? Um, or is it because your dogs need that much training? They need to stay locked in for long sessions of training in order to be able to win on the trial field? Uh, somewhere along the way, I think, Scotsman 
once said that 10 minutes of trialing could be like two or three hours of work mm. out shepherding. So, and I believe that. I think the mental pressure on these dogs, it, it takes a lot of their endurance. They're into the muscle more. It takes some endurance away. Yes, I think that, and I'm horrible. I can be accused of putting way too much pressure without saying a damn thing, you know, just with a growl <laughs> and my hey, I, I, so so I have to be careful with some of these dogs. I got a dog now by the name of Pete, which I think is going to be one of my great dogs also, and he's got all my good breeding in him. Uh, I used thirty years after owning Grizz. I used the semen up and got three or four pups out of it. And he's he's the one I kept for myself. Uh let's so so I got I got high hopes for this dog. But if I get into his head too much, you you can tell that he's he just something is wrong. Something clicks in there and, and the and the pressure is more than he can stand. So so I have to be careful. And I have to be careful with all my dogs. I think Zach was the only dog that didn't give it down, whether I was mad at him or not. He just went to work. You know, Red was Red was a listener, but never uh, same deal, same deal. Uh he he was he was more interested in working than than what I had to say. Uh the Grizz dog, I didn't know enough about training when I owned him. I've often wondered if I knew what I know today, if Grizz would have turned out to be as great a dog as he was, because I let him run free, you know, pretty much. And uh, and I think that's some of the things we take out of him, uh, including the mental, mental pressure we put on him. Hmm. Have you, so we've established your foundation of ranch work for your dogs, that they got to prove that they can get it done there before they become trial dogs. But have you ever had a dog that um, absolutely could get it done on the ranch, but it didn't translate to the trial? You know, maybe it couldn't handle the travel or it couldn't handle the hotel nights or or something like that. Just a dog that w was fantastic at home, but but couldn't make the transition? No, but I've had it the other way. The dogs that couldn't make a ranch dog that went on to make great trial dogs. Really? David Henry is a good proof of that. He he runs a lot of my dogs and he's done quite well with them. And some of them for one reason, and, and for one reason or another, they weren't going to make it here. And some of that is personality. It isn't just, it's just my personality. Some of them couldn't handle the pressure, just like we talked about a minute ago. And they went to him, and he's done, I think, pretty darn good with a with a bunch of MR or Ray S dogs, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. the so, so they weren't cutting the mustard on your farm or on your ranch with your expectations and your personality, but they still ended up in somebody else's hands and proved to be pretty competitive dogs. Do you think that they 
also ended up being productive dogs at home on that ranch as well? I, I don't, uh, uh, unless I had a ranch where David Henry lives, I don't know the answer. <laughs> yeah, good, I, fair. I, I, That's fair. <laughs> uh, but okay, I'll I'll tell you I'll tell you an example. I Red Oliver, we became great friends, and I gave him a dog called Meg, which is one of my probably the best bitch I've ever owned. And uh, and a year later, Red came back and I said I want to give Meg back to you. And I said, What's the matter? She's not good enough. And he said, no, she's too good. All I do is trial, and this dog needs to be a dog. Uh, and, you know, I respected him for that. Uh, and that, so that got me to thinking about what I think of a ranch dog and a trial dog and all that. So anyway, uh, just this dog thing is, uh, is part of my life. You know, it's... Uh, it's been pretty educational and pretty interesting. And and, and uh, the best part about him is I could go out there. and I, I, Like I said, I'm not a trainer, but I could go out there and work my dogs and just completely relax. It's kind of like going fly fishing. I forgot about everything else except working the dog. And that did a lot of therapy for me, to be honest with you, when we were going and blowing and everything was broke down and uh, I could go out there and, and really relax at five o'clock when everybody else was off, I'd go take my dogs and go out and have a beer and work my dog and relax. So it, it was, it's been a pretty important part of my life. And the people that I've met, I've met some great people, dog handlers uh, in the country and some over from overseas. Uh, so it's been a, it's part of my life, I guess. Well, I think that's a fantastic place to stop. Um, Juan, I really appreciate it. Before we sign off here, is there anything you'd like to tell our audience about? Um, maybe an upcoming bull sale or um, some uh, clinic you might be doing or a convention you might be speaking at? You know, uh, my my daughter would kill me if I don't mention that we're selling 330 bulls uh, February 26th, uh, 18 months old, ready to go to work, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so so that's something um, that's coming. That's Yeah, that's important part of our life, really, uh, is, is our bull sale. Excellent. So that's really about it, I think. All right. Well, I'm glad you pointed that out. And we will, as always, in the descriptions of our episodes, in whatever podcast app you choose to listen in, we will put uh, links to your website and your Facebook page. So if you want more information about uh, Juan's dogs or about the, the bowls that they have for sale, you can find it just by clicking the links in our podcast episode description. Juan, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure to chat with you. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Aaron. Have a good day. You too. Thanks for listening to Farm Dog. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, please subscribe, leave us a positive review, and tell someone about it. Thanks. Thanks.